Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steiner Blondie. This is Roland Orzabal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Back to the show. There is a podcast that is a world unto itself. A podcast as boundless as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the place between light and shadow, science Science and superstition. superstition. You've entered the The fifth fifth dimension. dimension. The latest series from the Consequence Podcast Network will open the door into Jordan Peele's new revival of The Twilight Zone, and it will go as far as the limits of the mind itself. Subscribe to The Fifth Dimension. Consequence Podcast Network. Hello to all of you beautiful pod people out there. I'm your host, Leo Phillips, and this is another edition of This Must Be the Gig. It's your little backstage pass to the world of live music and performance. And if you're wondering what the hell that is, every single week, I try and bring you a fascinating conversation from the beating heart of the live music and performance scenes. And what that means is kind of digging into the minds of musicians, festival founders, choreographers, comedians, actors, anyone obsessed with performance in the way that we are over here at TMBTG. So before... We dig into this week's fantastic interviews. I say it because we have many wonderful people on the show today. (laughs) Let's check in with our giggling constant companion here at TMBTG, Studios Engineer Adam. Hello. Hey, how are you? Hey, giggly, giggly. (laughs) Giggly, giggly. What's new with you? I've had a lot of sugar. I can tell. I was looking at social media because I have never been... Of course you were. I've never been to Glastonbury, but everybody is talking about it this year as if it were just totally amazing. Did Uh you see all that? I saw saw Alex, um, Alex rapping. Did you see that video? No, I didn't. What? So Maybe I'm not in following the right people. Literally do Alex of Glastonbury. I don't know what the hashtag is, but if you just 
Google Alex Glastonbury. Yeah. It is a fan who was asked. So basically, it's a 15-year-old mm-hmm. who's wearing this bucket hat. Of course. You know, stato, Teens. The new fashion. I actually just got myself a bucket hat with a cherry on top. Um, Literally. <laughs> Maybe post a picture. That sounds like a joke, but home. you're not joking. Anyway, the rapper Dave was on stage and he has this track with AJ Tracy called Tiago... Tiago Tiago Silva. I don't know how you mm-hmm. pronounce it. Um, it's named in honor, obviously, of the um, the football player. And basically, what happens is he calls out to the stage. I won't ruin the entire video yeah. for you, but he calls out to the stage and says, "Can anybody who's sober rap?" <laughs> but it, it's it, it's intense verses. There's nothing. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah, no. Yeah. There's barely any breath between the words. And somehow Alex was on somebody's shoulders. I'm assuming he knew the person whose shoulders <laughs> he was on. It'd be really funny if he didn't. Um, and he got called up on stage and rapped every word, word for word, perfectly. Wow. wow. It was so delightful. And I, I had the stupidest smuggy face on my face. I remember seeing videos of that with Run the Jewels a few years ago too. It's like right. it's just the thing now. No, I but guess. this is so much better. Yeah. But he was so full of energy and I just couldn't believe he knew every word and they had so much so much energy and awesome. connection on stage. Yeah, I'm I was have perfect. to go track that down. That anyway, really that's cool. definitely not a highlight, I'm sure. <laughs> but like... I'm sure that's one of the highlights. But I also was seeing people talking about how there was just like an abundance of free water mm-hmm. and water taps everywhere because it was so hot. I, they also apparently banned single-use plastic. They were using, giving, uh, making sure that all of the vendors were using cans in place of plastic bottles for mm-hmm. water. They had a co-op with food that was all in compostable packaging. They had guides posted everywhere that were there to help out if you needed it. It just sounds like heaven. It really does. So I'm absolutely planning on going to Glastonbury one day. It's been a dream bucket list from this bucket hat man. (laughs) I think festivals can so easily focus on how to make the most money. And it's really the great ones that stand apart and do these things that we all truly care about. So that they not only listen to the fans, but to the earth. And they also, I don't know, it just feels like a concept like that could have potentially gone awry. And I feel like they kept the music at the core. And obviously, if you do that, then every initiative that you have around that is going to be for the better. Yeah, they put their hearts into it. That's amazing. But that's also, you know, talking about festivals that leads <laughs> us to our uh, chat today. Absolutely, it does. But before we get to that... Sure. What? I want to let everybody out there know that we would love to hear from them on what they would do to make festivals more welcoming, more environmentally friendly, more accessible. Mm-hmm. Whatever your great idea is, let us know. Reach out on every social media platform at TMBTGPod or at Lior Phillips. We'd love to hear what you think would be the best way to change the future of festivals. Better yet, you are legally obliged to leave us a five-star rating. Yeah. (laughs) On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts, go find out the best way to rate and review. It is very important, and you have to do it legally. Right? Right. 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 We give a shout-out every week to one of those people that follows the rules and leaves us a (laughs) five-star rating. This week, we've got a five-star shout-out for Michael Rye, who had this wonderful note. 
It was kind of long, so I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. Hope you don't mind, Mike. I also hope you don't mind that <laughs> yeah, I call you Mike. When are you so familiar? Mike and I go way back to you get this morning to when I saw the review. Would you get on Mike's shoulders? Yes. And then eventually be seen by a rapper on stage at yep. Gasmary and Gloves. Yep. Me and Mike and Dave are going to rap together. Great. So Michael Rye says, Are you tired of your everyday oral experience being cluttered with nothing but inane <laughs> chatter, true crime podcasts, or subpar improv about Game of Thrones? Look no further... <laughs> Look no further, Sonny Jim. Lior is fun and bubbly, but we'll get Aww. right down to serious business when need be while keeping things moving along like smooth jazz. Who also, Engineer Michael? Adam is pretty cool, he says. Yeah. And it might sound like I'm just adding that on to the end because that's me. But he sure? actually wrote that. So thank oh, you, Michael. That's very nice of that you. That is a great review. And I love that you said, I get down to serious business. Yeah, business. 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 It's business time. Okay. Thank you, Michael. Every single summer, Pitchfork Music Festival stands out like a little dream in the midst of Chicago's kind of crazy and diverse music festival lineups. Um, we all flock to Chicago's Union Park, and this year's edition is just a couple of weeks away on July 19th to the 21st. Uh, fans are going to be able to see headliners like Haim, the Isley Brothers, Robin, and they'll also get thrilling acts like Sky Ferreira, Pusha T, uh, one of my favorites, Charlie XCX. And then there's also a little true taste of Chicago music, both legendary and current, in the form of Mavis Staples. Amazing. And the Great Black Music Ensemble. Also amazing. Um, and a lot of other things at the festival. Local foods. Mm-hmm. Uh, like my favorite Chicago diner has been in the past few years, but I don't know it's this year. We haven't bang, confirmed. Bang, bang, pie. Bang, bang, pie. Bayo, wayo. No, what's it called? Wow, bow. Wow, bow. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> um, I bought... There's- there's there's book fort and also there were there was a few years ago a really cool little stand amidst like all the vintage records and stuff mm-hmm. and i bought a cool pin uh of chance the rapper and there's flat stock there's a record fair it's really there's a smorgasbord if you will to get to the heart of what it takes to bring that smorgasbord to life i'm gonna keep pronouncing it that way because okay, it's fun okay you have your fun. We people, spoke with people Pitchforks. Are like looking at them. You have your fun. <laughs> Come on, TikTok. We spoke with Pitchforks Executive Director of Festivals and Activations, which is quite a cool title, Adam Kreffman. You and Adam got to chat about everything from how they keep offering more and more options and massive lineups, the festival's connections to the surrounding community, and partnerships with local charities and organizations, including young Chicago authors. So speaking of the YCA, we also have an interview on this episode with two incredible representatives of that organization. Young Chicago Authors is known internationally for its connections and inspiration to artists ranging from Chance, who we just mentioned, to No Name, to Jamila Woods, who we had on the podcast a few months ago, and we chatted about YCA with her too. But equally importantly, it should be known for its work using creative writing to help young people from every single background to understand the power of their stories and be given a platform to tell their own stories instead of somebody else just chiming in and speaking over them. So uh, they learn how to express their own lives and um, YCA helps them on that life path and makes an impact in their community in that way. 
so from poetry and rap workshops to open mics, uh, the YCA is a little crackling hub of expression and performance and a powerful agent, I think, of change in Chicago and beyond. And I was lucky enough to visit the YCA downtown. Maybe it's not downtown to you, but it's downtown <laughs> to me. Um and chat with the YCA booking manager Nicholas Ward and teaching artist Iman Loren about how poetry changed their lives, about socio-political power of performance, hosting performances on stage, uh, and their collaboration with Pitchfork. And we also get a little bit of a preview from Iman of one of her poems a live performance on this show dedicated to live performance i got i got a i got a front row seat literally i was sitting right next to her and it brought tears to your eyes and it was quite extraordinary and if i can be moved like that in that environment i can't even imagine what everyone's got coming up at pitchfork it's going to be incredible but let us not be delayed this is me adam nick and iman enjoy i owned a day camp for kids oh you did for like boys age seven to nine it was a summer camp yeah and then um sold that and was, I was trying to find, I was living with my brother in Lincoln Park, uh, trying to find a job. My dream job was, uh, I wanted to work at Encyclopedia Britannica, which it was like, (laughs) it was like, yeah, I mean, it was like just before, um, like Wikipedia really took off. It was like right as it was taking off. And I kind of didn't, so I, I, maybe I dodged a bullet there. Just the mention makes my heart like drop just because that was my childhood, you know, just going yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. upstairs yeah. to all the world books and the encyclopedias yeah. and making sure that I don't mark in them because my mom was watching. You know, I couldn't touch, I couldn't <laughs> draw in them or rip the pages out, which I wanted to. Yeah, we got a set of world book encyclopedia encyclopedias, like the full set that came in the mail in like, five or six boxes because um they're so heavy my dad my dad had he's he was an optometrist and he had he liked the sort of academic side of it a little bit he wrote the encyclopedia entry for nearsightedness and farsightedness for oh, world wow. oh my gosh <laughs> that's huge and so we got a set i don't know if he oh bought God. it or if uh or if they gave it i, I would think that he bought it yes um, and uh, oh my God, I remember it arrived and it had like, yeah, it had like the gold leaf top and yeah. the whole, it was, it was pretty magical. That um, gold was something else. I used to yeah. run my finger yeah. like over it, like it was this yeah. some sort oh, yeah. of magic spell yeah, that would yeah, conjure totally. this information and just. And it was always like a little <laughs> bit colder than like the paper side of, yes. the, of the book, you know, so yeah. Oh my uh, God! Yeah. Your dad is a celebrity. Do you know that? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I don't. I don't. <laughs> I'm like one I will step tell away. To, yeah, if this uh, if this makes it in the podcast, I will make sure he hears that. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure it will. Pitchfork offered me a job to do sales and business development. Mm. So there was like a uh, like probably maybe 18 months or two years there where I was doing sales and and business development for Pitchfork. And somewhere in that period of time, the Condé Nast acquisition happened um, and teams started kind of shifting around. They started kind of restructuring us to 
fit a little bit more into the larger organization. Um, at one point, I was our head of marketing, and then um, and then they, we formed. Uh, you know, historically, Pitchfork had never had a, a separate mm. events team in house. It was sort of uh, business and marketing people ran it, and then um, and then there were a bunch of sort of third party partners that we worked with. Uh, so, but we formed a, an events team here uh, under. Um, since the acquisition, and um, yeah, I was offered the role to head head up the the events team. So, so when was this? When did you transition into that role in terms of kind of manning the fort of the events? It's about two years ago. Okay. We have a team of uh, six of us total in the Chicago office doing events, and then um, there is a group of like six or seven engineers and developers who. They all came from Pitchfork, but they work across Condé Nast now. Right. Do you feel that even having that day camp informed some of your decisions toward events, not necessarily music events, but just curating a time away for people and having their best interest at heart? Did did any of that inform how you approach music festivals at all? I would say it, it more informed... Um, what it's like to run a small business, mm, right. um, which okay. essentially our, our events are a business, a standalone business. Um, I, you know, I did this thing in high school, um, at, at the, at the high school I went to, it was called, um, folk, this, we had this program called focus on the arts mm-hmm. that was, um, it was essentially a three-day festival where we took over the whole high school where you didn't go to your normal classes. We made a new schedule for every kid at the school, and there were, I think there's probably 1,600 kids at the school. Um, and we booked a lineup of, like, a bunch of um, different things. I mean, there was – I remember we had, like, Greg Cott came in and did a talk about, you know, music writing. Um, we had a bunch <laughs> of different bands. There was, like, a puppeteer, the puppeteer for – the guy who does Cookie Monster and Baby Bear and a bunch of other um, Sesame Street characters lives in Highland Park. And um, <laughs> so we got him to, to do some stuff. And then uh, I remember, I think, Wynton Marsalis came and, and did like a, a jazz night. And, um, you know, so we had, it was probably 50 or, or more artists over the course of three days or artists or writers or whatever. Um, and, and we scheduled a new schedule for each um, each person they could sort of submit what they wanted and then we'd get them what they, you know, as much of it as we could. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I mean, looking back on it, that was probably the thing that, um, that really kind of informed is it, or it's the, it's the closest thing to festivals that I had done really before I was here. I mean, I've always done events for, you know, for book tours and things like that. But um, that's very, it's quite different. Um, so, so what do you then feel was your, how did you, because obviously from your experience, it's not a direct mm-hmm. line, but it's not necessarily, sure, yeah. you know, you need all of those skills. Yeah. You can't go to college to study how to be a music festival director. You know, there's nothing <laughs> that that title right. is somewhat, obviously it's holistic because there's a lot of different sure. skills needed. So what yeah. do you feel is your, um, what do you feel is your strength in not almost coming from a music only background? 
Well, yeah, that's a good question. It probably, I don't know, being uh, maybe having the capacity to um, know that there's a lot that you don't know right. <laughs> uh, and making sure that you have the right people in the right places. Um, you know, we, we have, we have had the same partner on the festival, on the Chicago festival for 14 years. Um, and so it's not, I didn't have to come in and rebuild the festival from the ground up. Um, of, of course, I think I probably could have, and it would have been a mistake. Yes. Um, uh, you know, it would have been, it would have, I, w- I could, I, sh- I should say I could have attempted to do that, <laughs> but I think it would have struggled and failed because so much of these things, especially with the Chicago festival, it's about the people who put it together and the community that it creates. And so much of like the creative solutions that you need to come up with, um, you know, four months out or four hours before gates or whatever, um, come down to the people that, you know, in the city who, um, trust you, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and they're willing to, to sort of do work with you, you know? So, what is your connection to music? What What was the first concert that you ever experienced? Uh, one the first that you concert can, I ever experienced. Yeah, the <laughs> one that you can remember. Um, I guess the one, the first one I really vividly remember was a, um, I think I was probably in seventh grade. Yeah. Uh, I went to a, a Jimmy Page and Robert Plant concert. Oh my God. Uh, Wow. It was it was at the United Center. Um, I think it had just been it was the Chicago Stadium. It was, it was the old the old Chicago Stadium, and then it got rebuilt. And it was the United Center, and um, I went with like uh, I think Led Zeppelin's BBC Sessions had just kind of come out as like okay. a double CD or a quadruple CD or whatever it was, and. Um, you know, we were junior high, and so of course we discovered Led Zeppelin, and we thought it was like the the best thing that ever happened <laughs> to music. And so, um, I do remember thinking, hearing like, um, what is the the one solo in Heartbreaker, the one guitar solo where it's just Jimmy Page playing as many notes yeah. as he possibly can. Yeah. I remember at that moment thinking like, oh, this is the best thing ever. And <laughs> you know, in hindsight, I'm a little bit embarrassed by that. But the, no, um, that's great. Also, like, was, there's a wow factor to things when you don't really understand the technical side of it, and that's like the entertainment yeah. aspect of it, which yeah. we all oh, yeah. fall in love with when we're so young. Yeah, so, yeah, totally. Well, it was, and just the spectacle of exactly. like the, you know. The, yeah. the masturbatory guitar solo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's like, whoa, um, what is this crazy magic? Yeah. yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, I would say that was probably my, my, my first really memorable uh, live music experience. And so, but, do you do yeah. you do you get to obviously go to like how much of your job? is also scouting out other festivals and making sure that you mm-hmm. are doing things that are potentially above and beyond and or that really mm-hmm. do fit the spirit of the brand. Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of that. Um, I, I don't. I definitely don't, like, go on the road and scout other festivals. I think um, I try to encourage 
um, my team to, to go to, to go to them when they can. Um, but you know, it's not, it's not the easiest thing to, to do because of course we have several festivals and events to put on and you want your weekends back when you can get them. But yes. the, and at this point I've got two kids and you know, I, the, um, the amount of travel that I do already is like yeah, a lot. Probably feels so, like too much. Um, yeah. yeah, I think, you know, we try to go, I try to go when I can. I mean, the, the one thing about pitchfork that is kind of, um, we're a little bit spoiled in that we have an audience that really just cares about the music, um, which is not to say they want to like have a bad experience otherwise, but um, we kind of, um, I think we have a pretty good read on our audience and what they'd be into and what they aren't, you know? And so we know, for example, that uh, creating a 40 by 60 foot, um, you know, vinyl market uh, at the festival is going to do better than any like Instagrammable backdrop will ever do. Yeah. You know, it's like <laughs> what are you saying? The, the big pink bunny at some of those festivals doesn't do that for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. it's it's a note that comes across my desk every now and again. That's I'm like, sure. hey, you should really have like an Instagrammable moment mm-hmm. when you first walk in the festival, and it should say Pitchfork Music Festival, really big. It's like, uh, I don't know, but why? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like what, what's the, you know, we're, I feel like that. that term is also kind of cringeworthy to have an Instagrammable moment because Instagrammable is so interchangeable. In the future, it will be at least, you know, that, that right, concept yeah. is so, who knows if Instagram is going to be as relevant if something else comes in its place, as did You're Twitter right. to Facebook, Instagram to Twitter. Um, but there are a lot of festivals around the world, the ones that I've traveled to, that definitely do those moments very tastefully. So they make mm-hmm. sure that yep. it's an interactive experience yeah. as opposed to just a, you know, structure in the middle yes. of the area with the brand name and you have to pose yeah. in front of it, which is awful and it makes my skin. Yeah. You know, I mean, some people love it and, and I don't, I can't judge. Um, yeah. <laughs> that is the world, you know, signage and naming yeah. is, is definitely the world. Everybody's visual. They mm-hmm. want to know where you are instead of just tagging a location. Um, yeah, no, I mean, the, there are little things that we try to do um, that feel like they're actually useful for the festival. And then mm-hmm. they also add some visual interest to the festival. Um, our... Um, our partner on the festival, Mike Reed, had a, an artist friend who was making these um, – I can't remember the, the artist's name, so I'll have to look it up later. But the, yes, sure. um, she she was making these, uh, these little like sitting booths that okay. were modeled after um, like uh, like 1960s, 1970s like Eastern European bus stops. Okay. Wow. So they're sort of like these, okay. like, That's yeah, fine. very specific sounding, but, yeah. um, they're like kind of like these, like mini brutalist bus mm. stops. Okay. And they're just places to sit. Then we put out a bunch of chalk cause they were painted white and like, mm. you could just write whatever you want on them. And it was sort of, um, you know, I don't know how grammable they were to use the, the parlance of the time, but the, um, 
I, but people liked them and I saw people sitting in them all the time. And, you know, so, um, but yeah, I mean, I, for the most part, I think we rely on like, it's summer in Chicago. It's mm-hmm. a really tree covered leafy park. Um, you know, and people are there for the music and, and I think that that's really special nowadays. I think that's, it's crazy to think that that's a differentiator for our festival, but, um, I think it is. Well, I also just think, because what's interesting, I've covered so many different festivals and spoken to a lot of different founders and everybody, of course, has a different approach. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of it is, you know, you have to talk about the business of it as well, which I think people don't realize that it is a business. It's also, it's not just about the entertainment and you have to be as an independent or at least as a non-live nation uh, you know, <laughs> you, you have to make sure that you're doing things that fit and align with your brand. So mm-hmm. what do you feel? Because a lot of the times I chat to them, especially now with the, there's a huge shift now toward creating that 360 festival idea. So, mm. for example, I went a few years ago to Flow Festival in Helsinki and I was brought in by the tourism board. So I landed up being there for a few weeks, which was mm-hmm. of course wonderful. You can imagine on either edge of a yeah. music festival, you get to actually experience the culture, which is, which <laughs> informs right. the festival. So, you know, yeah. as a journalist, it's that's the best possible way. But there yeah. was something also about what they offered, which I loved not to say that this is something everyone should do, but just the concept of it, I thought was interesting and in how it was shifting the landscape. They had a movie theater on site, which you can imagine the, lo- the logistics. I can't even, mm-hmm. <laughs> probably crazy. Yeah. So they had a movie yeah. theater, they had comedians, and then even, you know, upcoming festivals have podcasts that are going live now. Um mm-hmm. All that kind of stuff. And Boston Calling had that last year with a few surprise Mm -hmm. guests. And I feel like that's, I don't know, I'm curious to think what you think about that just from your perspective and within your brand um, Mm -hmm. and your experience. What do you think of how festivals are almost being forced to offer more because, you know, just there is more? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because on the business side, of course, they're just trying to find... They're trying it, to, I mean, avenues, and it, it's absolutely. not, it's not right. It's not purely cynical. Of no, course, they're no. doing it in smart ways that mm-hmm. offer, you know, more, um, more value to the people who come to the festivals and, and they're, and they're trying to do so in a way that, that is outside of just booking more artists because it's, that's very expensive and it's only getting more expensive. Um, you know, for us, for Pitchfork, it's, it's, because it's a media company, first and foremost, um, it's about narrative and storytelling. And mm. so, and there's a, there is a sort of a, a tacit permission or, um, I guess just like a built in credibility with the audience that, um, that they'll trust that we can pull that off, mm, you know? So, right. we'll, so we'll have, we often do like two or three on stage conversations with artists at, um, like in the in the days leading up to the festival, um, at different places around the city, um, and it'll be you know one of our editors sitting down with um, Courtney Barnett or something like that, talking about just her career, touring, you know, her influences, whatever. Um, you know, we do create podcasts out of that, and that so pulling together. Um, 
sort of the editorial side of Pitchfork um, to um, to sort of create more stories around the festival or to not, I guess not create, but just tell all the stories of the artists and why we booked them and what makes them important and exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's, you know, it, it does a thing for us that um, I think enhances the fact that the audience is so into the music. It's, it's right. There's a focus. You know, it's something like, yeah, it's something like 80 or 85% of our festival going audience regularly reads pitchfork. Mm-hmm. And so, there's an audience that we know reads about music. And if you spend your free time reading about music, that means that you really, really like music, you know? Um, and there's, so there's almost like, we almost can't go too deep with this audience. I mean, they're just, they will, they're right there with us, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, this year we will be doing Pitchfork Radio from the festival. That's okay, that's going to be a first yeah, we haven't announced it yet, so I have an exclusive. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> uh, when. This, when are you going to announce? Yeah, I don't know when sure. it's going up. I, I don't know when we're going to announce it for radio either. We basically just figured it out yesterday that we're going to do it. Is it with him? So. Oh, I met him last year. Is it with Elia? Elia. Oh, he's yeah. so lovely. He's really yeah, he's wonderful. Great. Yeah, he is. He is really, really great, and he's got that radio voice. Yeah, um. he does. <laughs> He does, of which I do not have, which I quite enjoy. <laughs> no, but you've got the, you know, you got the, the novelty of the accent. Oh, yeah, there you go. That pushes me. Woohoo! <laughs> Elia, I'm coming for you. <laughs> so now you're bringing the Pitchfork radio in. Is that going to be where, mm-hmm. do you know visually where that's going to be in the park? Uh, we're working on it right now. I mean, okay. it's going to be so... Um, we always do Pitchfork Radio with a sponsor, and so we've got a sponsor on board, and so it'll be sort of adjacent to their um, their activation space, uh, and that part we're trying to figure out exactly where that activation will. We kind of we know where it will be, but we just have to make sure that it will be there, and then and then we'll start planning out Pitchfork Radio. We're, we're going to have to figure out some. Um, some sound solutions because uh, I think it's going to be, yeah, we'll see. There's probably going to be some sound lead. Um, and so we're going to have to figure out how we, how we approach it, but yeah, pitchfork radio that will be there. Um, what else? I mean, there's always the live stream, which does extremely well for us. Uh, I think we get maybe two to 3 million views each year. I think we had over 3 million last year. What are the logistics um, there, just for the listeners who maybe are wondering how you actually pull that off? Because obviously yeah. live streaming is is something that's been around for a while, but it's much yeah. more, it's something that people can actually rely on now if they, do, if they can't travel or don't have the money to pay right. for a ticket. Um, right. So it is obviously well, a great I, alternative. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, you know, the... The delivery mechanism at like the for the end user has obviously gotten much easier. You just turn on your phone and then you pull up the live stream. But the production on the front end, it hasn't gotten any easier. <laughs> it's like it's it's expensive and it requires a lot of people. Um, yes, yeah, so we bring in satellite trucks so that we have a dedicated internet line just for the uploading um, bandwidth that's required. Mm-hmm. Um, there's you know 
probably miles of cabling <laughs> that we have to do. Um, you know, there's five cameras per stage. On two of them, we do jibs, meaning like those big arms that you see swinging um, off of the stage. Which, um, and it's just, yeah, and then a, a massive crew and a, and at least one, maybe two trailers where they're doing the, the actual on-site production. So you have like a producer's studio that we build on-site. Um yeah, it's a it's a major major lift. And then on the on the website, because that's our our you know, we do put some of the sets on Facebook, but our primary distribution point is is the website. Um so we have the, the live stream take over the, the kind of top half of the entire website for the whole weekend. And we have two channels going on. There's one channel that toggles between the two main stages, and then there's um uh, another channel that's just on the blue stage, mm, mm. which is kind of it's because it's further away. But um, and then so users can can toggle between those two channels as well. So yeah, we set up a a, a TV network for the weekend. I mean, it's kind of it's it's analogous to everything else that goes on at the festival, yeah. which is like you build a a small city for three days, and then you tear it all down. Yeah. <laughs> so then, what are the limitations of the space? Because obviously, I know that you had. You've you've turned it into because I think my first year was just a few years ago. Uh-huh. I covered it for an amazing publication I love in the UK called The Quietus, um, okay. and they also wanted me to go in and just experience as well the surroundings, but more so focus on the music because they're a music mm-hmm. first publication. But mm-hmm. what was interesting is obviously there was a lot of open space. Um, but you did use it very well. And then I know that there's a kids area now and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff, which is so wonderful. I think the best part for a lot of people is the kids area, <laughs> even if, <laughs> you know, just because it's always the place that's kind of heavenly yeah. and clean and, <laughs> yeah. um, you a little can bit relax, quiet. Yeah. a little bit quiet. <laughs> and obviously having yeah. that accessibility for parents, I think is so important yeah. considering yeah. how a lot of people followed Pitchfork be- before they became a parent. Um, so yeah. you are obviously offering something that follows on their life stage. Um, yeah. So what else, what are the limitations then that you have currently with with the park? Just how quickly you use up 13 acres. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, it, once you start to really put in the big pieces, you know, here's where the stages are going to go, here's where the fences go, here's where the you know, we need these 20 by 20 tents and, you know, the sponsor needs a 40 by 20 space and this one needs a 60 by 40 space. And, um, you know, you need to have enough food vendors there so that you can actually serve everybody. And, um, here's where flat stock's going to go. Here's where the chirp record fair is going to go. Here's where renegade craft fair is going to go. Once you start to put in all that stuff, I mean, you're really, you're talking about a few feet here and there that you, if, if you, something just a little bit this way can you get a few more feet this way you know it's it's um it gets eaten up really really quickly Mm. and there's little things every year that that um our partners kind of find additional places where they can sneak some things in where we've you know traditionally used a place as storage and then we've found that we can rent an adjacent building to do storage instead and that frees up some you know hey we've got 1600 more square feet (laughs) and so um uh yeah there was i remember maybe two or three years ago near the blue stage we 
started using some of the road just south of it and put a bunch more, a few more food vendors down there. Um, and another, I think another bar maybe. And so basically we, we, we were able to, whereas before that was like, once you get into the blue stage area, you're kind of there and there's no real amenities for you. Mm. And now it's, there's, there's some on the way in and there's some once you're in there. Yeah. So it, it really functions as like a little kind of outdoor venue once you're in there. And if you wanted, you could probably spend the whole, your whole festival over there. I mean, I don't think anyone does, but yeah. um, Yeah. And then, you know, the area that you're talking about with the the kid zone um, last year for the first time, we, we put a, another bar over there and we had bang bang pie shop, uh, Chicago sort of, uh, pastry place. The that, best place um, ever. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> or great. Other than, yeah, no, I mean, it's it's fantastic. It's wonderful. Yeah. They make everything there and it's fresh and the people who run it are wonderful. Yeah. Yes, it is great. great. And I and I think the people who run it are friends with some of our production people. And that's mm. what I mean by it. It comes down to the people who are producing the festival and what their connections are with, mm. with the city and, and it needs to reflect that. But um, yeah, so we... we and then we put a bunch of picnic tables over there and we called it the chill zone. And, um, that's exactly what it was for. You're supposed to chill there. And, um, that's where the kid zone was as well. You know, the thinking being that, well, we got the kid zone over there. Let's give something for the parents. And, um, and even if you don't have kids, you can go over there and grab a beer and, at a picnic table for a little while. Yeah, um, so it's just creating so, that extra pocket to make sure. Yeah, and you know, before it was used, um, I think we had used it for like bike parking in prior years, and we were able to find a a, a lot, uh, like a parking lot across. Uh, I don't remember where bike parking was this past year. It was at, I think we found a a lot, um, maybe near Cobra Lounge that we used for bike parking. Okay. Um, so I guess it comes down to, yeah, we're expanding a tiny, tiny bit into like different spaces, uh, around the park to try to free up more square footage within the park. And, but you know, it's, it's a little bit different every year. Um, you find little ways to optimize the space and to cone Mari, the things that aren't working. And, um, do you 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 feel though that in terms of obviously working with your surroundings, there's a lot of festivals that come in and don't really pay attention to the neighborhood that they are, you know, basically mm-hmm. trashing for three days if they don't take right, care right, of it. Right. So how do you make right. sure that you're involving the local communities and also, you know, making sure that you give back? Because I know that uh, just on the food side, there's a compo- composting initiative, but yeah. that's just kind of micro, just on the food side. So what are you doing yeah. for the neighborhood surrounding the, neighborhood. the park? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's been a, it's been a, the neighborhood has changed so much since, um, since the first pitchfork. I mean, I went to the first pitchfork as a fan. It was when I was, I had, I was, um, it was my last year at that, that, that day camp for the kids. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, and I went, um, actually, you know what? I think it was, yes, I think it was then it was, it was 2006 and I went, um, with a friend of mine, she picked me up and she had like, a. there was like three or four of us and she had a picnic basket with like sandwiches and stuff. 
a very different time in in festivals in general. You could just bring in a picnic basket. Yeah. Um, and I think you know someone had a frisbee or whatever, and it was like. <laughs> You know, I mean, it was you treated it like a Grateful Dead concert, yeah. which is like what your frame of reference was uh, for festivals yeah. it, only 14 years ago or whatever. Well, in America, um, yes. Yeah, Yeah. right, 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 right. Um, so, but at the time, the West Loop wasn't what the West Loop is right now. And, you know, for listeners on the podcast, West Loop is like, I think it's arguably the the best and the biggest like restaurant neighborhood in any American city right now. Um, and it's like just any, growing and, even just every day I hear new, something new is it, popping up. Oh yeah. yeah. No, I mean, there's the Ace Hotel is there. Yeah. Google has an office there now. Soho house and the Hoxton hotel is about goats. to open. I mean, it's yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, every, there's like multiple top chef mm. winners have restaurants yeah. there. It's, it's, it is a full on, bonanza in the west loop now and so and we are at just the way far west end of the west loop and then you go to the other side of it and it's kind of you start to get into garfield park which is um you know still a pretty rough neighborhood so it's 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 kind of an interesting place right now and it'll be interesting to see how it continues to change but you know what we try to do every year for um the neighborhood or for the city is, is we, we always find an, a nonprofit partner um, to ideally that has, um, you know, a significant impact on social services in the city um, or, you know, contributes in some way to some of the causes that, that we or our, our audience is passionate about. Passionate about. So, um, so who are you see. partnering with this year? This year we are going to partner with Young Chicago Authors. Oh, wonderful! Which is the yeah, it's the sort of poetry organization that has spawned the careers of so many Chicago rappers, and is um, beyond that, just I think you know brings poetry and literature to um, to kids and largely in underserved communities, and it's just it's a great rallying point. And so we're trying to figure out exactly what that's going to look like, but. Um, We've got some some really exciting ideas for what that will look like. And then um, we will probably have one or two more charity partners that uh, we started. We start, you know, there's a there's like a an industry part of the of the festival grounds, the VIP area. Um, we started charging people to, you know, it's, it's, it's invitation only. It's meant for kind of the the industry, but we charge people and, and donate proceeds to um, a charity partner. Okay. Just because it was, and typically in the, Chicago or how, yeah, we try to do it. You, we, okay, we try to do it to organizations that put as much of that to use as possible, mm-hmm. as little of it to overhead as possible, and and hopefully places that have um, uh, a local impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so Wonderful. so much of the work that you do of course involves being very proactive and creating your own opportunities, not only just, you know, responding to what the people are wanting. You also have to curate Mm -hmm. something that you would want to go to as well. And obviously Mm -hmm. that matches the editorial side of Pitchfork. So Mm -hmm. do you want to talk to me a little bit about the lineup and how, because obviously I know it's just not you alone that's coming up with the lineup, but how, what are your thoughts on, on the curation of a lineup 
that is linked to a site, you know, very well known for its criticism. Yeah. Positive yeah. and negative, which is great. It makes the circle, <laughs> you know, the, the circle needs to end at some point. Sure, um, sure, sure. And then also uh, having that ability to put younger artists that maybe haven't had that platform, give them that platform, right. which you do do as well. So do you want to just yeah. talk a little bit? I, I'm not I'm not a conventional uh, conversationalist, as I'm sure you know. So I'm not really interested in like, how do you create a lineup? More so, right, what is right. your personal <laughs> connection to this lineup, the specific mm-hmm. batch of artists? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's funny because it's, it's the amount of, you know, the number of sort of lists of artists and mm-hmm. how the lineup can look the very the number of variables that we're working with at any given moment are like, it's just mind boggling and it's almost too much. If you try to like, um, if you try to like type a manage it, it's, it's, it can be, it can be overwhelming. It can be the only thing that you do. Um, and I think that, um, a lot of it comes down to circumstance. I mean, who is touring or who, who seems excited to play the festival um, because that matters that, you know, that means they're going to probably put on a good show. They're going to be thinking about it for a while. Um, and they'll probably talk about it on social media and, you know, all of that stuff is, is good. If, 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 if an artist via their, their agent is, you know, really wanting to play the festival, then, then that's important to us. I think, um, I mean, at its most, simple. We try to reflect what the website is covering. And so that's as simple as, oh, we, we should really book Earl Sweatshirt this year, you know, because he's, he's just very vital right now. But then I think beyond that, it was thinking like, okay, um, you know, Earl Sweatshirt has this like odd future Mm. sort of thing in his past, but then who's he working with now that's making this new sound. And it's, it's this rapper in I think in the Bronx, Mike, and then standing on the corner, this like crazy avant-garde jazz hip hop group. Um, and so we just kind of figured what if we can put all three of them on the same day, you know, this, this crew that contributed to, um, to Earl's album. And I think they all contributed to Solange's recent album. Mm. Um, and I don't think another festival is going to have that. And I think that, you know, it's funny because it's a lot of engineering to, to essentially speak to like probably a couple thousand people who are really going to understand what we did there. Um, <laughs> you know, but I think that's what, that's what sets it apart. And, um, you know, it, it's, yeah, that's what, what's, what makes it special. And it becomes a thing, it becomes a thing that, you know, Years from now, people say, were you there when they did that that thing with Mike and standing on the corner and Earl Sweatshirt? That was crazy. Yeah. So. <laughs> Looking into the future. Um, but I, it's, it's I mean, you true. know, because, it, well, it's, mm. it's already happening. I mean, people mm. still talk about, like, you know, um, I'm trying to think of, like, the ones that really come up, like Neutral Milk Hotel or, um, you know, when we booked Chance to headline. And he, I think... I don't even think acid rap was out at that time. Yeah, we booked Kendrick. He was on the blue stage, the blue stage, the smallest stage before he had a mixtape out. Mm. So and it's and it's 
yeah, it becomes a, you know, it's always, there's always a little bit of like a, a you know, baseball trading card kind of element to, to live music in that way. Mm. And then so. obviously having a lineup that is, you know, very inclusive is obviously not only important, but it's a, it's a non-negotiable, um, just because how can you talk about music without including everybody? And I do yeah. feel like you've done that here, um, in a really simple way as well, because you've got like one of my favorite Chicago artists at the moment is Tasha and you have mm-hmm. her, you know, on the same day as somebody like Robin, who is world right. moving and Charlie XCX, who is so much fun. Um, yeah. You know, and then you've got like JPEG Mafia and, and uh, Ebay, who are just so wonderful as well. And then I mean, uh-huh. Dunes, who have their cult following. So there's a lot of um, weirdly, I think what's what's also good about the lineup is that although there aren't that many artists in comparison to other festivals you know you've right. got these festivals that have hundreds of artists where you have to read the small yeah, font. A, lot of, a lot of yeah a lot of room for error in those sure I mean, sure and there's not you're careful just you're just booking whoever is touring really or whoever yeah, you know yeah. will get spotify streams or you know instagrammable moments right. <laughs> um right right, right, but, right but then you got somebody like last year you had obviously lauren hill who was mm-hmm. a huge, uh, an, an enormous um, get almost for a festival, considering how yeah. I've even gone, you know, I was in the Middle East living there and she cancelled there. I was somewhere in Australia and she cancelled. So everywhere I've been, she's almost well, cancelled. Well, there were no so, guarantees that yeah. she was going to show up. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure. It was, yeah, we... we we rolled the dice and, and we locked out. I mean, we knew that was, it was a case though, you know, going back to my, one of my first points was like, we were told that she really wanted to do it. And that counted for a lot. I mean, she, um, you know, she takes her craft very seriously sometimes to the point where she will cancel if things aren't going the way that she wants them to go. And, Um, but you know, we had a sense that, um, this was the priority. This, Mm -hmm. this show at Pitchfork was the priority and she, I mean, she showed up, she did it. Her sound check was like three hours and it was, it almost gave me a heart attack, but, um, (laughs) we had to, we ended up having to delay opening the, the, the gates. gates. She was, yeah. <laughs> Look, if <laughs> anything, she, it wasn't, she's a perfectionist. It's Oh, it's 100%. Great. I mean, it was kind of, it was incredible to see her do the sound check. It was, um, uh, you know, the, the minute sort of orchestration and detail that she was giving to her, her band. And then, um, she was just going, monitor by monitor of like put the full sound up okay now isolate just this monitor and like adjusting every little thing about each one and it was just i mean even during the show she was still sound checking but like (laughs) i don't you know but the show that she did put on was just uh was incredible so um 
And looking, obviously, you have to have this mix because of the past lineups. You have to have this mix of legendary icons and also up-and-comers mm -hmm. that are very well known in the <laughs> local scene. So it's that split yeah. between, you know, a lot of people have known about Valley and, you know, Mike for a long time. But it's right, about them right. getting, obviously, the international scope as well and th that attention. And now you've got Sky... Ferreira, who, of uh -huh. course, you know, anybody would want to have her at your festival. Um, right, right. So how did you manage to, was there anybody on the current lineup that instead of them coming to you, you had to pitch to them? Who, who did oh, you? Oh, I mean, several, yeah. Is there um, anyone that stands out that you were really excited that that came through in the end? I mean, Robin. Yeah, yeah. without a doubt, Robin. I mean, she... We've been trying to book her at every festival that we mm, do for yeah. like three years and she hasn't <laughs> been doing anything, you know, every single time it's like, oh, can we get Robin? Um, you know, and there's always a handful of artists like that, you know, like if Frank Ocean ever wanted to do something with us, I would, I would, you know, just, I'd collapse on the floor. <laughs> you know? So it's a but like, plea to Frank Ocean, who is obviously yeah, listening exactly. to yeah. my podcast. broadcast it far and wide. <laughs> Frank, we're here for you. <laughs> Um, no, I, I, I think, uh, you know, Robin was, um, it took a while. I think it was like probably three months of, of talking to her, her agent and, um, what were her concerns? Do you know? I don't think it was, I don't think it was concerns. It's I think it was just, schedule. um, it was just trying to figure out her, yeah, scheduling and, and routing and stuff. You know, if you're someone as big as Robin and you haven't toured and, eight years or whatever, yeah. and you got this new album that's critically acclaimed, I think, you know, it's less about like, you know, um, like, I, I think the opportunity is equal everywhere for her. I think right. she can kind of go wherever she wants at the moment. Um, and so we're, I just feel lucky that she wanted to play Pitchfork. Um, you know, I think it's, I don't really know why. I I guess she liked it. She has played at the festival in the past. Um, and I don't know. Yeah, I, I I guess maybe I don't want to ask too many questions about why. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'd just be, just be thankful that, yeah, she, that, that she, she wanted to do it. Yeah. Is there anyone else that you're really excited by or any other initiative that you're really excited by that you feel really represents the spirit of 2019 and how kind of chaotic the outside world is and you know how, is there any artist that you feel is uh, you know kind of your you're really excited by um i mean i'm excited i'm looking at the full lineup right now on our website and i it's like i want to say push a t because i love push a t but then at the same time i'm excited about heim and i'm excited about parquet courts because i literally cannot stop playing that album that they put out last year and um, you know, I, there's, I love the, I mean, Kate LeBon, I've, I've never actually seen her live before. Oh God, you're going to be blown yeah. away. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, if I get a chance to even see, I never see a full set at the festival. Oh, no, like I'm sure. I'm sure. But, um, the, yeah, I mean, I think Whitney, who I think they've said on, on social media, they'll have a new album out by then. And, um, you know, uh, Nene Cherry, that's kind of a crazy, cool, uh, 
legacy thing. I, you know, another one that I, I kind of can't believe that she wants to play our festival, but that's kind of amazing. Um, and then I think the show that will undoubtedly unleash the, uh, the, the mosh pits and the, the best <laughs> what will probably be seen as the best show at the festival is jpeg mafia yeah just because he's so he's just i mean he puts on such an insane show um absolutely you know, I, I think it's one of those that will be like people will be talking about mm. it so then how do you communicate dissatisfaction or conflicts whilst you're at the grounds? How do you communicate mm-hmm. that with your partners and with the production team? How do you make sure that, obviously, do you have some sort of uh, plan B, C, D, E? You know, how many plans do you have set up that, you know, because obviously it's weather dependent it's something can happen Mm, at the festival you know you have to make sure your security there's so many variables and so many Mm -hmm. moving parts so how do you make sure that you communicate that in a way that doesn't stop the show from going on um we've got a really veteran crew i mean we've got protocols in place and we've got backup plans for when things go different ways but you know i mean there's 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 also kind of like the um, I guess the basics of, well, when gates are opening for the first, you know, on Friday for the first time, more, we're going to have more production people there than, um, than at any other point. And so, um, I don't, yeah, I, I think there are several hundred people that end up working on the festival that weekend. And so there's, you're, you know, like, setting up a little city or setting up a little sort of company or, or organization or whatever, um, that there's a bunch of different departments and people have different areas of focus and you'll have one person dedicated, you know, well, several people dedicated to Pitchfork Plus, um, and they'll manage the people at the gates there. And then you've got someone managing the main gate and someone managing the second gate and all their teams and the ticket scanners from, from our ticket vendor. And I mean, it's, yeah, I guess. Um, how do yeah how how do you organize any any big company or organization? It's a lot of meetings. It's mm, yeah. um, <laughs> and hopefully it's a lot of engineering to get you to like a relatively simple point, mm-hmm. right? Right, exactly. Um, but just making sure that you've got everything uh, in place for that to happen. As you mentioned earlier, you have other events that go on surrounding mm-hmm. the, the pitchfork idea and brand. And you had midwinter, mm-hmm. which was at the art Institute right. um, of Chicago. How did that idea come about? And were how involved were you in that, um, in that, uh, in that curation or at least just that team or were you solely focused well, on yes. the festival? No, I mean, yeah, that's my team as well. And we kept more of that one in-house than any of our other um, events. Uh, well, I can't or any of you our did other... that. That was just like, <laughs> it was, I didn't it was really even, crazy. yeah, I didn't really <laughs> even uh, understand it until I got there. Because obviously I've yeah. visited it so many times, the Art Institute, yeah. but I never realized, uh, you know, just how much curation probably and planning went into making sure that... I don't know, somebody's not going to fall over into a painting or... Yeah, no, you're not going to... No, yeah, wreck the place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. I mean, that was our worry up to and throughout the event, of course. But, you know, I think you alluded to the fact that, you know, we have a kid zone at the main festival, the Chicago festival, because the audience has grown up with us um, and some of them have kids now. Um, You know, the audience has grown up and knows how to behave at a museum and not that they didn't before, but just like it's a different I guess it's a different proposition. It was also an evening event. Um, you know, you couldn't just like bring drinks anywhere. Um, and when you're in an austere environment like that, your behavior changes, whether you know it or not, you know? Um, but in terms of, uh, planning and booking and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, that, that was, it was very intensive. I mean, it took probably 10 or 11 months and countless meetings with various departments at the art Institute and, um, my colleagues at Dodson, um, who used to manage the hideout, um, and he does our he's our production director. He was the kind of the driving force on a day to day basis with that one. In terms of the production of the whole show and booking and and you know, down to the minutiae of how many ticket scanners at each door and how we were gonna operate the co checks and all that stuff. So it was um yeah, it was a serious feat. But, you know, the thing about these, when you're doing, you know, annual events, I mean, that's part of the benefit of doing them every year is, you know, you get probably 80% of the work out of the way the first year by just the planning. And yeah. and, you tr- and you try to retain as many of the people that worked on the event as possible so that you don't have to re-explain um, or you, you do re-explain, but you they have a basis of knowledge. It's not like a completely new experience for them. So, right, right. um, and you can get, hopefully we can get it to the point where it is like the Chicago festival where it's, you, you tweak things here and there to make the experience better. And well, this year we found a place to do the chill zone. And so, you know, that, uh, if we can get to a place like that with midwinter, I think that would be amazing. Mm. So you do plan on having it annually. Yeah, that's the goal. Um, we're still trying to figure it out. Do you think that you're going to change the ticket structure a little just because obviously <laughs> it was so different to how normal yeah. shows yeah. go? You know, you're buying on uh, this. There's so many different yeah. tiers. The base ticket. Plus the base the ticket plus then obviously tickets. shows add on. So yeah. obviously that that is how some yeah, festivals I, uh, around the world work, but obviously nothing like that which is obviously people it's it's a little strange and obviously it can get yeah. really expensive which to be honest for us we just then went the day that we knew we were seeing mm-hmm. acts that we hadn't seen you know mm, and yeah, so we yeah, made yeah, yeah. sure that we had that experience which is also again right. your option for a three-day festival at, at a, a well, field right. you know you don't have to yeah. go for the three days that's the beauty of a of, of a well-curated lineup you know <laughs> Right. Yeah. And that was our, that was our sort of hypothesis with midwinter is that very few people would go all three days because it was, it was aiming for a Chicago crowd for the most part. People who's, cause you know, who's going to travel to Chicago in the middle of February. (laughs) It's it's a a notoriously bad time to travel to Chicago. And, um, but it was, it actually surprised us how many people did come all three days. Um, and I, I do sort of expect that, to decrease a little bit next year. Um, 
What do you but think you will we'll change I mean, the can... ticketing? How like maybe entrance gets you maybe yeah, one think... show or something? I don't know if that's probably gonna be confusing, but because obviously you have to pay <laughs> right. you have to pay homage to yeah. the art institute. You have to yeah. the, the resources well, probably it, it, needed are crazy. Well, what it is is that I mean, there's almost no way to do it that wouldn't create a certain amount of confusion just because the art institute itself is like you know building after building it's like multiple additions on top of additions and it's confusing to just walk around there you know um which it's made okay by the fact that everywhere you look is like priceless and iconic pieces of art but yeah the um the navigation is think, not one hole you you're going oh, up yeah, multiple no, flights it's, of stairs it's, and yeah know. yeah exactly and yeah and hallways and, you know, mazes and all kinds of crazy things. So I think um, we will probably change the ticketing structure a little bit. Some of it is is dictated by the fact that, you know, we had about 4,000 people each night. And um, but some of the theater spaces could only fit 400 or, you know, a thousand. And so the alternative would be like people lining up for an hour or an hour and a Which half tr- and then too tricky for or being logistics. turned away. Yeah. Yeah. So we had to have a way. Yeah. We had to have a way of, um, of metering that, you know, and then the other piece, it's funny because it's like, we thought that that would make the base ticket more affordable and that people would, see that value and then you know they can make their decisions about how much they want to spend and how much they value all these exactly. things exactly yeah um but it kind of yeah it did there were there seemed to be a a a loud opinion on social media and in some press outlets that it was the inverse it was so expensive if you wanted to see everything and no one kind of acknowledged the fact that like well, you don't have to see everything. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, it, like and, the way that we did it. Of, yeah, we, right, we definitely, right. we went on, you know, the day of One or Two Point Never um, because obviously I right. knew that seeing him in in a room like that um, yes. and also the yeah. Art Institute, I, I just since living here, I haven't actually been able to go to those uh, auditoriums oh, really? just because oh, wow, I yeah. haven't seen, I've, I went to one show. I thought that the focus wasn't necessarily only on the music. It was also on the Art Institute. Well, and, yeah, and, and, and they, that was the idea. And, yeah. I, and I thought it's funny because there's a lot of changes that we want to make to the soundscapes too to – I mean, we might actually put up signs that say, like, please be quiet yes, when, when be hearing. Because yeah. the whole point is that this is an auditory experience. Um, but we also might just do more out-of-the-way galleries to sort of make that a little easier. And, um, you know, the sound in the Grand Staircase didn't work all that well. So we're kind of rethinking how we do that and probably going to use Griffin Court, the, the modern wing, in a different way. But um, so, yeah, we're we're – there's Working a lot. On it. Yeah. Yeah. It was the first year and I thought largely it went amazingly well and smoothly. Um, there's definitely some tweaks to make, but, um, 
for I suppose that's the strange thing about festivals and or events. You just you have to iron out your issues and make mistakes very publicly. (laughs) But also very publicly. So whatever goes Uh, wrong, especially in the landscape that we're dealing with now, of course and every every person has every right to question the you know, a a brand or a company putting on an event. You know, that's definitely within our rights to do within your right to do as a fan um, which I'm sure you are as well. Um, mm-hmm. But it is so strange because you're going through this all publicly and you're like, no, why yeah. is that sound not bleeding through that way? And why is this? But I feel like the at least the um, it was a really nice use of a space that's kind of sacred, um, yeah. which I think is always an interesting experience, of course, because... You know, a lot of a lot of people don't really, maybe haven't visited the art institute in a while. Maybe aren't members or or that sort of thing, and so it created mm-hmm. that added on um, appeal to Chicago. You know, it was a really nice view of Chicago, um, right? And, and the culture surrounding that. So yeah, and that was that was part of the point. Is is you know we have this incredible institution in our backyard, and it's. Um, Let's all go there and hang out. Yeah, exactly, so. exactly. And just to wrap up, also, of course, a lot of festivals. I know, just looking at the site, I was laughing earlier because there was like you could, you can't bring stuffed animals or something like because <laughs> I like I love looking at like what you can and can't bring because of course security uh-huh. is a really important thing, but sure, so yeah. is offensive behavior, which I stand. I talk about it a lot to make sure that there's no threatening language or any assault or anything to that nature. Mm-hmm. And obviously seeing mm-hmm. what like items are prohibited and what aren't. Um, so that I saw <laughs> well, that you can't yeah, bring a it, toy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some good. of it's informed by security. Some exactly. Of it's probably coming sure. from legal. And then some of it's coming from like 14 years of seeing some of the weirdest shit <laughs> of all time. You know, I mean, there's, no, there's like, multiple years in a row where, where kids would try to, kids i don't know how old they were but yeah. they, they they would try to they would go to the park mm. two weeks it would have to at least be two weeks before the and festival bury the we alcohol. have the park starting on monday bury alcohol oh yeah, my god do you know how funny this alcohol. is i didn't know okay american kids are crazy <laughs> americans are crazy right so i didn't come on so i didn't know yeah. that they did this but when i was walking i had to cover Lollapalooza a few years ago but i was walking and there was a group of people in front of me speaking about how they had buried their alcohol and they mm-hmm. weren't sure, they had forgotten which tree <laughs> they had Oh buried. my God. <laughs> and I just thought, and you know, it's piping hot. I mean, you know, July, uh, it's so yeah. hot and yeah. I can't even imagine. So how do you make sure I, that they don't do that? Or how do you like have enough eyes on the ground? I mean, who wants to drink I mean, a bottle that's like been revived from the dead? There. Yeah, like, I don't know. <laughs> it, you know, if you're, I don't know, if you're some kind of pirate, or you're, <laughs> yeah. into, you're used to just like, Warm here's a bottle, I'll just drink it. Yeah. Um, no, I, it's, it hasn't happened in a couple years at least. Well, it might have happened two years ago. Yeah. The thing about digging up alcohol is it takes time, and it's not exactly like a discreet 
activity. No, <laughs> <laughs> no it can't be misconstrued for a dance thought. move. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely not something. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's one thing to to go and bury it. It's yet another thing to dig it up when you're surrounded by like hundreds of security people and stuff. So I, um, but I don't know. I mean, you know, if if one enterprising kid gets away with, I, I keep saying kid, but if one enterprising twenty one and older adult, uh, you know, buries a a hotel sized bottle of vodka under, <laughs> yeah. you know, one specific oak tree or something like that. I mean yeah. it could it could be much worse. Yeah, it's gonna <laughs> you happen. know, it's if that's yeah, if that's the worst of our problem. Yeah, then, exactly. Okay. So do you feel like in terms of obviously addressing a lot of issues that festivals and or just public events in general, um, how mm-hmm. are you addressing uh potential harmful behavior that happens so often at public events, not only to people of color, but also women, uh, also Mm -hmm. uh, people who have disabilities as well. I know your accessibility plan is great. I've seen Mm -hmm. it. Um, Mm -hmm. But how do you, and obviously people who have disabilities are notoriously targeted and are victims. So how do you Mm -hmm. make sure that your festival is a really safe place well, I mean, a lot of it is in the prep and the training, especially with security and production people to just be on the lookout for it. And then the other piece is, um, you know, this is where creating and having a community year after year at the festival is, is really important. And it sometimes it, you know, it can be, um, sometimes it can ring as hollow from some from festivals where it's like, oh yeah, our these are our festy buddies and yes. here we go. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of um but for us we rely on it and we say, you know, so I think we had um our code of conduct specifically um calls out the guests saying you've you have an active role in this. If you see something that isn't right, then you have to say something. And um, you know, we, we kind of lay out a zero tolerance policy for harassment or discrimination. And, um, you know, it includes, uh, sexual orientation and gender and gender identity and age and religion and disability status and all that stuff. And, um, you know, so that we have that in place. And then last year, um, we did for the first time we had a resource and response center because there was a bunch of press. I think there was an expose in um, Teen Vogue mm-hmm. about um, sexual harassment and groping at um, Coachella and just how little anything uh, is done. Yeah. Solution there was for anything yeah. and. Um, you know, there's like a very cynical response that you can have to that, which is like, well, you know, if you start to address it, then it acknowledges there's a problem or there's liability or something like that. But um, the other route is like put a resource on site that is that actually addresses this when it happens, because it does happen at live music events and, you know, include enough sort of um, signage and messaging that it shames the people who do it, that it gives power to people to call out the people who are doing it. Um, and then the resources in place for when it, when inevitably something does happen. Um, and so, yes, we, we worked with, um, 
a local organization to do the resource and response center. We had licensed counselors on site and it was totally anonymous. So it kind of works as like a, um, almost like a, like an onsite HR almost where you can go in there and, um, you know, sometimes it's just saying I was touched and I don't know by who and, and, you know, and I just need some time. And, mm-hmm. you know, Absolutely. They, and just so. making sure that that space is available. And then also obviously having people who are advocates for uh, safety, not feeling like they'll be attacked as well. if they Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Sure. And so, and if That's you feel, tricky. and if something is actionable, then you, then we have security or you even go to the police or whatever. But if the presence is there, you, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. just, it's a non judgmental yeah. space to sort out, and to know what resources you have at your disposal of just like, what are your options? What can you do? Um, you know, and look, it was, I don't think it was all that busy last year, which is a good thing, but, um, but we will definitely have it there again. And I think it's just, we're just gonna, that'll be part of our normal course of business going forward. to introduce yourselves whoever wants to go first i'm sitting with two wonderful people at the yca um so you just want to introduce yourself for our listeners yeah hi uh, my name is nick ward and i work here at young chicago authors my role is the booking manager so i work with a lot of the artists that come mm. through our spaces on really thinking about all of the points of engagement and opportunities and ways in which um we can help uh, facilitate mm. getting their art more out into the world than yeah. it already is. Mm. Um, and mm. so, yeah, so I, I work a lot with our teaching artists as well as our artistic director, Kevin Koval, and a number of other poets, rappers, the occasional visual artists yeah. um, who come through. We have a lot of different <laughs> kinds of folks who come through our spaces. So yeah. I work with a lot of them. Wonderful. Tell yeah. me who you are. I don't mind talking <laughs> to people. So my name is Iman Loren. I am a full-time teaching artist here at YCA. I'm also a performing artist, a, perf- a poet. Mm-hmm. A, I'm also a podcast host, so that's why this Amazing. is like very comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> what is your podcast? It's called The Real Hood Wise of Chicago. Where can... That's amazing. Thank Where can you. people find it? It's on like literally all 10 platforms. Okay, great. And SoundCloud because I did that myself. Okay. Because, you know, not everybody can afford it in their budgets. So I look out but for the you homies. Can. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got to. Make it accessible for everybody. Amazing. Yeah, so, so I, work, I work with the artists who are a part of this organization. Okay. Um, and so really it's all led through the organization. So mm. a lot of the artists that I work with are the teaching artists. We have a... Um, uh, a core of six mm-hmm. teaching artists, okay. um, as well as a uh, artist fellow whose name is Brittany Blackrose Capri, um, and our artistic director, who I mentioned before, Kevin mm-hmm. Koval, um, as well as our associate artistic director, Jamila Woods. We should always shout out Jamila Woods, yes, who you've had on the show. I've had her on the show a very few months ago, and uh, we were like, you know, one of the first places to write about it and write about her 
music and yeah. then I was the first person to write about her new album this year oh great the magazine Dazed and Confused yeah oh that's fantastic yeah. Legacy so Legacies. I had it I had it in my inbox for a very long time and I felt very guilty <laughs> for being able to listen to it without it being out in the world that's so yeah. that's so great that's so, so exciting so we listen to it a lot here <laughs> and did you see the new video that dropped this oh, week. What? Was in it. Aman was in the new video. You gotta look. Yeah. yeah. I had different hair. I was definitely I was a blonde. It was fun. Was it fun? It was do, so much do fun. Do blondes have more fun? Um No. No. I'm like I think a natural I just, blonde, so I don't know. I what was this like I feel like is. I like when I had that hair, I was just really living my fantasy as a white woman. So yeah. it was like I got to like Put my purse on the train next bus to me. Bus people around. Right. Like, the bus take, driver... Take up space. Literally. Wine, moan. Yeah. The bus driver didn't ask for the extra 25 cents. Like, I was completely cool. And then, like, you know, it was just... It was very nice. That's but, wonderful. How how did you get involved in that? Just to side segue into um, that. Jamila asked me. <laughs> she texted me and she was like, hey, can you be in the video on Friday? And I was like, ooh, I got a hair appointment. So, like, what's this time looking like? But... Um, Jamila and I have had a very strong relationship for years. She was a mentor of mine. Like okay. I've been coming to YSA since I was 13 or 14. So I'm coming up on my decade of this organization. Wow. And um, yeah, so I've been in almost any mm. video that she has like welcomed people to be in. How has she shifted from since she was a mentor? Because I think that's like a really nice place for you to find introspection mm -hmm. because now you are in that role almost mm -hmm. so how do you feel like it's changed your perspective of being a mentor by you know having something like that and working so closely with mm -hmm. her I think it has ultimately taught me like the different aspects and the different like spectrums of boundaries and what boundary setting can look like because you know she has done so much for me that she didn't have to do like she mm -hmm. could have just like purely just see me as like as a mentee mm. that I work with we're gonna keep our relationship in the walls of this organization mm. but she had stepped up and exceeded past like the mentor like boundaries and like stepped in and being like an mm. older sister to me mm. and so like having that for years it had taught me that like granted everybody that I work with who comes in this space especially with the artist it's kind of hard to set those boundaries because it's like you're teaching personal stuff and yes. then you want to be like <laughs> Lawyer roll. <laughs> Don't ask me my favorite color. I wish I could like put that sound right, like <laughs> oh yeah, just push it into the <laughs> podcast like, like a little <laughs> button. Um, but so yeah, she basically just told me like you know just how to like be selective with my boundary settings. Like you know, as an artist, we always give ourselves, but sometimes we give ourselves more to more people, and it's okay to hold ourselves a little bit back from others and I'm just ultimately grateful that she had trusted me with that relationship mm. and allowed for us to grow and then just set a great example about who I can allow myself mm. to grow as a mentor and a sister for others. How is, do you feel like that boundary is not available because of the work that you do usually or is it is it because of the type of work you do and the essence of what you do or is it just always like that you think with mentors and teachers and you know, the mentee. I think boundaries has to be set, especially as a teaching artist, because like I said, we do teach things that are so personal. Mm. So that's automatically like a key of comfort. You know what I'm saying? But something that I learned is that like, um, 
there's a difference between like comfortability and like accessibility. Just because folks might be comfortable with me doesn't mean that they can get the full access to me. And um, with a teaching artist, it's like making themselves, making yourselves accessible to like their teaching needs, their artistic mm. needs, you know, their mentoring needs. But as far as like any other needs, then we can talk about that outside of the space. So I feel like it's just being very organized with your intentions mm, with and each very person. particular very particular do you feel like that's like that as an artist so because i think that those are two different roles because <laughs> i often talk about like if you listen back to some of the episodes and the interviews that i've done we don't broach the topic completely we don't sink into it but a lot of the concepts that we chat about are how artists are sometimes like you don't need to know me I'm giving you everything, but don't like hug me after the show. I honestly, you know what I mean. How are you? How are you with that? I really, I would love to be an introvert. I yes. would really love to. I'm more of an ambivert. Like I will pop out to a party and like literally stand in the corner by myself, right? And so like with an artist, I have like really branded myself on like yeah. intimacy, vulnerability, on like you know liberation, just being my true forms of self, like. That's just who I am. Yeah. Um, and like a lot of people think that like they know me because of that. And so it really challenges me to like keep extra special parts of myself reserved for myself and like for my family and my mm. friends because the world has so, like I feel like every artist is their own brand. Mm. Like literally like when you think about like how people make money on YouTube mm. from like the clothing that they wear, they can mm. get a check off of that. They don't even have to say a name. So it's like when people see me, they see everything that I have given them mm. and then you know it's a matter about if they try to take it or if they like want to be mm. smart and try to get more yes <laughs> yeah I also think that there's like a really uh there's a really good moment in that especially with what you do Nick because a lot of booking is also really nurturing relationships and making sure that you are doing what's right for not only yourselves and the brand, because, you know, you mentioned brand, but also who you're aligning with. Because you don't really know many people when you first... Obviously, a lot of us feel like we can connect very quickly, but then somebody might change, you know, tomorrow you might be a different person. So how do you make sure that you are aligning the brand with the right intention? And that could actually lead us to chatting about why you've chosen to you know, link up with Pitchfork this year. Why do you choose the brands and the artists that you do? <laughs> well, I think that's, that's a great question. I think in many ways, um, in many ways they choose us, you know, and I think a lot of the, the some of the challenges um, that we find and, and also some of the spirit of the organization is really about um, thinking of the organization as like, you know, artists and arts administrators who also right. are trying to like continually widen the net of mm -hmm. what the work that we do does and bring okay. as many people into that as possible. So it's, right. it's oftentimes very much about trying to make sure that as many people as possible can like see themselves in the work and can mm -hmm. be brought into the work more, whether it's as audience members or active listeners or you know, younger students who never thought they would ever write a poem in a right, day, yeah. right? You know, and we, we, this is the kind of experiences that we have. And so it can be sometimes a little challenging because I'll be working with schools really mm. directly who, who want to engage some of our artists. And, mm. and oftentimes we don't know the schools 
that they're walking into. We don't know the students. What do you mean in Chicago? Any, uh, in Chicago, anywhere, anywhere in Chicago yeah. or, or, or in the uh, kind of suburban yeah, communities right. beyond. You know, so I we have to kind of take a leap of faith together, yeah. you know, and that can be really challenging. I'm taking yeah. a leap of faith when I'm working with the schools um, and then our artists like Iman, who are the teaching artists going in there, are taking a leap of faith mm. with the students mm. and with me and with the schools, you know. So, yeah. and, But part of the reason that I think we do that is because we believe it's really important to keep um, trying to make new radical and active listeners and really trying to get young people to see themselves mm. at the center of the story of their lives. Right. So that other people are not telling the stories of their lives. They are telling their own stories. And how do you, what are the barriers then? Because just thinking like, <laughs> I'm foreign, you know, I'm not from here. I'm from South Africa. We have our own, really? you know. Yeah, I'm from Cape Town. You can't hear my accent. <laughs> I thought it was Australian. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a drunk, yeah, it's like a drunk Australian mixed with like a British, I oh, suppose. Like Maybe, yeah. I mean, I lived in London for a while, but we all sound like this. But anyway, I mean, we were colonized by the British, so we they like try to make us sound like them. Um, but in South Africa, a lot of the barriers, especially trying to get the youth of today to listen, it's very hard not only to g gain access, it's hard to make sure that they are going to stay. So often I found with a lot of programs that I ran back home was you bring them in, they're so excited, they love everyone and all the artists but then they tend to lose interest because there's so many things and so much happening in a young person's life. So how do you make sure that you keep them on board? How do you make sure that, I mean, this is a question for either one of you or for both. Yeah, I mean, how I can talk about sure? it from like more of a, you know, or yeah, organizational yeah, kind of thing. Absolutely. I think for, for me, when I think about uh, what this organization does really well, part of it is just consistency. You know, so we do public programs year round that are free all the time here in our space. Every Tuesday night, like literally, literally every, every single Tuesday, Tuesday night, night, yeah, unless it's Christmas night, <laughs> um, there will be wordplay, which is a writing workshop at 6 p.m. And that's open for everyone. It is open for everyone. Okay. It is the programs that we do are designed for youth uh, ages 12 to 25. Okay. But it is open for everyone. What about the older people? They come through. Um, they still come through. Okay. And there's, um, there's even a teaching artist by the name of Toaster who runs this program. Uh, well, Toaster and Rachel Jackson, they run a program here called Big Kids Slam, which mm -hmm. was basically like... A open like a slam that was inspired for like people that are aged out of the typical slams yeah. or a lot of the youth who were raised in LTAP and they have graduated school and they don't want to really go into these institution slams and they mm. just like really just want to have fun or they don't have a team anymore. Mm -hmm. So Big Kid Slam was um, a slam that was housed here for a while. Um, that a lot of people like who are quote unquote aged out still come yes. to. Aged out, I love that. When, when someone asks me at my age, I'm just gonna be like aged out. I aged out of it. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think I think consistency really is key, and yes. and so wordplay is, um, like I said, is free every Tuesday. Writing workshop, open mic, feature performance. Okay. We do Saturday programming in in the school year. That is kind of the the real like lineage of where the organization started it started mm -hmm. as a drop-in writing mm -hmm. program mm -hmm. um 
almost 30 years ago that is really it's again free on saturdays writing workshop followed by an mc workshop and we and we do that whether there's two people who show up or 25 people to 40 people who show up and so i think being really consistent and so everybody knows this is where you can come yeah um and it is always open and we it's always free and it's always free and it's and i think we we try to um work really hard to also think about continually making the space safe for the people who are coming in so we have these safe space rules that we use to kind of invoke the space every single time do you want to do it? Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to ask Amanda to do it because Amanda has been a host of these. Amazing. And has yeah. done this before. Yeah. So I have Wonderful. not. I'll okay. do the shout out. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'll do the shout out. So this is how we do it. Yeah. Okay. Um, YCA is a safe space. Safe space? That means no racist. No racist. No sexist. No sexist. No homophobic. No homophobic. No transphobic. No gender bias. No gender bias. No ableist. No ableist. No ages. Or otherwise derogatory language or otherwise derogatory language is allowed basically you can say whatever you want to say on open mic but you can't say anything that violates that and I feel like also here like Jamila calls hip hop uh, like the black CNN right and when you really think about like what our pedagogy is like a lot of our curriculum is based just like around hip hop and influences because unfortunately when we think about poetry it's a very skewed spectrum it like goes from like Oh, dead white dudes like William Shakespeare, yeah. and then you get Maya Angelou or February. Yes, and, and somewhere in between <laughs> is like a slam and then like, poet, or like, you know, no. like in a coffee shop. Yeah, or or like literally the in between, like when, especially when we're thinking about like poetry or art taught in like public schooling, School. mm. you'll get like that teacher who loves to teach at risk youth yeah. or inner city youth, and then they want to come in with a Tupac lyric and say. <laughs> This is poetry too, right? Yeah. And so I think that also something that we do with our curriculum is that we just always bring it back to like the people of who we are, who makes up our curriculum. Like we literally build curriculum off of each other. Mm-hmm. And we also like are not afraid to like use the youth's poems and like use the youth's like work as like right it's not just a top down you actually involve everybody and make sure it's accessible. We have to yeah. because like it it really it can be very, like, you know, limiting when, like, you only see older poets who, like, quote-unquote, made it in a world where we said that we needed a plan B for. Sure. And so when you have poets like myself or, like, Patricia or, Mm. like, Kara Jackson, whose book is coming out. I know. We we can mention it as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. So much to mention. But so there is. And there's also like, I'm quite happy that I'm doing this also because I didn't grow up with young Chicago authors. And, uh, you know, a lot of people that I've met here, that's how I got onto a lot of people that I met here. You know, that was the first thing that they told me about just because it aligns with a lot of the things that I've done and do. But how do you, I think my question is, what inspired you to continue to do it? Because once you get involved in a project, it's one thing. I think my curiosity comes in the space of staying and continuing to do the work. So why why have you continued to do the work? Do you mean as a as an apparatus or as, as an a individual? Human, as a as human? an individual, as whatever you are identifying right, within I'll... the scope of the company. Great. I mean, I think so for me... Um, and I haven't, I've been like around the organization as like a friend and a volunteer even before uh, I worked here formally. Um, and so for me, I am excited about the work because it show like there was a sort of like net 
selfish benefit, which was that it showed me a world of and a and a and, sh- and a Chicago that I didn't know existed because I was operating along some of the same kind of replicated segments of segregation of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And so like when I first came into YCA spaces and I went to Louder Than a Bomb and I went to Wordplay, yeah. I was like, oh, actually these are the, this is like the, the city that um, the dominant like white supremacist power structures <laughs> are completely glossing over and yeah. pretending doesn't exist. Or they're only pretending exists in very specific ways that suit their narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was just very, just personally very um, eye-opening. But mm-hmm. I've stuck around because what I've seen is an incredible, um, an, an incredible dedication to craft from all of the artists who work here, and um, like a real excitement in wanting to see um, folks continue to succeed. I mean, I met Aman when you were like 18, 19. <laughs> 18. Yeah, she 18, hasn't 19. aged out. You haven't you know, aged out. I think you would just, I think, I think that's right. Yeah. And so like even just um, seeing a lot of folks who I saw when they were, you know, some of whom 14, um, 15 and seeing them participate in our bomb squad mm. program where they were just sort of getting into that like real I'm on fire with the world of yeah. writing and and seeing those kind of showcase events to now where they have books in the world um that is really exciting to me so that like really thinking watching about watching that this, trajectory absolutely yeah and whatever yeah. it is it actually doesn't have to be poems mm-hmm. you know and I think like that's exciting like sometimes I'll I'll meet people who have literally nothing to do with the organization today who will say like I did that when I was in high school and it kind of saved my life Mm. You know, like that, that, like, yeah. So, understanding what the impact is, absolutely. You know, oh, that's so, really wonderful to hear. I feel like also because are you from Chicago? I'm not from Chicago. Okay, so I'm from uh, did you not know that? <laughs> Don't say Massachusetts or something. <laughs> Ohio, no, no I'm, well, Michigan. I'm from, okay. I'm from oh, a suburb funny. of Detroit. Okay, so, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> we approve. I I've been here 15 years. Okay, well, that More or less. Yeah, More that less. counts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And for you, I suppose, what North is it? <laughs> West side, south side, shorty, all day, every day. What is, why have you stayed? What is, what, why, why, I, why do you stay in Chicago and do what you do and continue to do it? Honestly, I'm at this point right now where I'm thinking about what I want to do because I have exceeded my five-year plan. Oh, you had a five-year plan? I definitely had a five-year plan. I haven't met someone who had a five-year plan in a long time. I had a five-year plan because also I like pushed out, was pushed out of high school, so I had to graduate from an alternative school. Had very unfortunate living circumstances, so I had to live in another country momentarily. Yeah. And when I came back to the States, it was like, you got to figure out what you want to do. Mm. And when I was coming here, like, since I was, like, 14 and seeing, like, everybody, like, anybody that you could think about would come in this space to wordplay when we were up here. Mm. And the stage was, like, by the wooden, by the brick wall. And um, I would just see everybody, like, being a teacher. Like, I was remember, like, seeing Jamila, and I was like, wow, she's a teacher. And, like, she's an artist, but, like, 
all my teachers told me that like I couldn't do that or mm. I needed a plan B or I needed to figure out something else that was going to quote unquote really make me money. Right. And so I just made sure that I was very diligent in making myself seen even throughout LTAP, like even when we wouldn't win mm. or when I moved on to another team and when we would win, um, making sure I took advantage of scholarships that YSCA gave me, making sure I made myself seen at a check, check the method like every mm. Saturday, like volunteering, just showing my, like showing the dedication, like as Avery says, the work. So mm. making sure that like I'm always like doing the work and you know, from bomb squad, to a teaching artist and now I'm just like YCA I feel like I've also like made my footprint here and that's what's very fortunate is that this organization is so ongoing and it like I feel like it only gets better and it gets better mm -hmm. as we continue to hold ourselves accountable to wanting to be better not just for ourselves but for like the communities that we are servicing and mm -hmm. for like the faces that we are putting on our faces I feel like that is something very influential so I'm deciding what I want to do but of course I'm still going to be here like do, is that a Scorpio tattoo? I'm, yes. Are you I, a Scorpio? I'm a double so Scorpio. Am I. I'm a sun and a moon. So I, I when are you? November 9th. 9th. I was just going to say I'm first. So okay. I'm a little on the... You're a, you're a little October <laughs> Scorpio, but yeah. Drake saves all the October Scorpios. So. That's wonderful. Um, <laughs> I knew you were. I was like, you're a Scorpio. I could like hit by it, you know? Talking about pitchfork and aligning yeah. with... Yeah. places that can allow you to do what you do best yeah. why have you, you you mentioned before this chat i think it was over email that this is your 10th i think or this I is think, your 11th or i something? think this might be my 10th pitch for really? as an uh, like an audience so member why, <laughs> so what is the what is the what is the allure what is the what is the thing that you find interesting about pitchfork festival and why did you why did yca decide to partner with them this year i mean i think on a personal level i think that pitchfork is really really appealing because you've seen this this trajectory over the last 10 years or longer you know of all of these music festivals there's now the music festival circuit that is very well known mm. right and so many of them are organized by these kind of faraway corporations um who don't really think about the communities that the that the festivals are in right and i think yeah. that I think that Pitchfork and the Pitchfork Music Festival has really seen the value in um, singularity in terms of programming artists mm. who aren't doing the festival circuit. Right, yeah. In, in terms of community, um, I think you'll see a lot of Chicago artists at Pitchfork in ways that you won't see in other uh, in other festivals, a percentage at least, you know, and I think that people really get a chance to shine there too. And then I think also just like, the, the community, right? And like being where it's located. I know that in some of the early years I went, um, they got a lot of pushback from some of the folks mm -hmm. in that, in in that, that community area. on yeah. the west side and they adjusted. You know, mm -hmm. they adjusted set times on a Sunday so that it didn't disrupt yeah. the church crowd. Um, which I think they, like, uh, I could yeah. be wrong, but I think they did no, that they from do do overnight that. once. And they also make sure that instead of coming and bulldozing a community, they also make sure, and there's so many festivals like this, which is great. It isn't rare. It's just not done regularly, if yeah. that makes sense. So Pitchfork also allow the, the residents that live in the area, because usually it's like you putting it in an area because it's affordable, and then no one in the area can actually come. And you put up fences come. and, yeah. Yeah, so they actually make 
they give a lot of tickets away as well oh, that's great. to make sure that they're coming, you know, that, they, that this, yeah. they're not like dumping this thing in a community that can't actually be involved, yeah. which I think is interesting. But so what is YCA doing there? What is okay, the actual, so YCA, obviously I know on paper, but for yeah, people that so are going to be there. We're so excited. I'm so excited. I'm very excited too. Um, so uh, we have the really just incredible opportunity to have poets every single day of the festival at the blue stage, okay. which is the smaller stage under the trees. Um, and so what we're going to do is each day we will have individual performances from uh, five poets and there will be, they will be interspersed before uh, various sets. Okay. And so, so there will be like trying to yeah. battle with, no, no, so they'll so time. they'll okay. be a poet at I don't know you know one poet at two thirty one poet at three fifty mm-hmm. one poet at five thirty okay one poet at six p.m. and then the f- kind of a feature poet at seven thirty and that feature poet will also be hosting the day of poets right okay um, and so on Saturday Iman is holding <laughs> down the blue stage I'm so excited um, so Iman will be hosting. Uh, I wish you could see. Work. I wish this Pitchfork. was a video yeah. interview because I wish you could that, see how Iman just. That is literally the clickbait of my YouTube video. I'm hosting Pitchfork. Like this is my third year performing at Pitchfork. So the yeah. fact that I get to host it. Yeah, and so Amazing. we've done. You know, we've done some performances in the past. Um, some of which we're doing this year with Bookfort, yes. which is um, we love Bookfort, and we we work with Haymarket Books a lot mm-hmm. too. So they'll be there. We're gonna do a couple of okay. couple of sets there on Saturday and Sunday. Mm-hmm. But the main main that we're doing is the Blue Stage Friday, Saturday, That's and really Sunday. Big. It's, it's really big. Colored <laughs> stage this year. <laughs> <laughs> Where were you last year? Bookfort. Bookfort. Yeah. Oh, which will be again. So now you're actually but, yeah. at a stage. But and so the. Is there a theme attached to it? Like, what is the brief that you were given or that you well, gave the, the artists? The, there's not really a theme, but the, the way that we've kind of curated the lineup is really celebrating Louder Than a Bomb, mm-hmm. which is the... When did, I wanted to... We can chat about that Yeah, we'll, well just move... Yeah. Yeah, we'll just, so we're celebrating Louder Than a Bomb, mm-hmm. which is the almost 20-year-old uh, poetry festival that we throw in the city of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, we like to say we could be wrong, but we like to say it's the world's largest youth poetry festival. Anywhere I mean, between. it is. I concur to that. Yeah. Like yeah. For, for a safe uh, community, like for a safe poetry mm. festival that also exceeds beyond Chicago and Chicagoland area. Like we get mm. people from like Indiana. Yeah. And and it's all young people driven, right? So the festival is, is anywhere from six to 1,100 young people participating. Mm. Next year's our 20th anniversary. Um, so there will be wow. some big... 2020. Big, oh, yeah, 2020. Wow. 2020 yeah. Some big blowout uh, events around that. you do it on that. the 20th of whatever month, just so you can have that three. <laughs> it's probably that's, that's possible. That's possible. <laughs> 220. Yeah. Um, and so... This year, we're thinking about celebrating a lot of the poets who were participated in the um, 2019 finals stage. Okay. Uh, we did finals this past year at the Auditorium Theater downtown. Mm-hmm. And so there will be 12 poets who are from that stage. And then each day, we'll have a, uh, um, an NMC host who is kind of the featured poet. Yeah. Yeah, so that was really just thinking about continuing to celebrate louder than a bomb, and this, you know, in some ways, and you know, in some ways, this is kind of the the start of kicking off the twentieth anniversary mm. season. We're really just 
trying to remind people that we're we're still here. That you there. Yeah. How long are the slots? Like, how long can somebody be prepared to watch someone for? Like, how long are we? Are we three allowed? to five minutes? Really, just okay. one poem. Yeah. So it's yeah. really just thinking about like quick, dynamic, uh, really performative, and really leave somebody with a, a kind of like meaningful sense of something a little bit different than mm. they maybe came to see. Yeah. And do you want to talk a little bit about performance and poetry? Because we chatted a little bit before I started recording in that I think my hope was really to ask you about how people don't really think poetry is performance, whether that's the words jumping off the page or how someone's saying it in their head or you, you know, delivering a poem whether you wrote it or not mm -hmm. so how do you connect to that side of performance because it's so different to teaching or playing an instrument or acting you know what i mean it's mm -hmm. such a it's such a specific niche talent to be able to deliver a poem so how do you connect to that i mean i don't want to sound like you know the bossy one but <laughs> i mean unfortunately well, not everyone has it you know what i'm saying yeah and like <laughs> not wow. every like and that's like not not to sound like you know braggadocious or anything but literally not everyone has that spark and that drive in them to want to deliver page poetry to stage poetry mm. and that was something that like i was really taught growing up in this organization like there's page poetry and there's stage poetry and with page poetry i learned about you know form and how to like make your words dance and mm. my personal i believe my personal skill because i also am a fan of like music and making raps is learning how to like make my performance like the performance i give you mm. is like you will probably still read it the same on the page and I was also raised in an organization that I competed in Louder Than a Bomb with who is a super big on performance. So mm. I was very fortunate enough to have a mentors who was like instilled like, like, what are you reading this poem for? Like, are you just reading it to put us to sleep? Or like, are yeah, you actually you trying it. to get us in this feeling? Mm. Like, and I feel like a lot of times people feel that you have to like write a poem for the snaps or you have to write a poem for the tens, and that has misconstrued a lot of performance culture. Mm. People think that because of that, now I have to yell more, or now I have to beat my chest mm. or incorporate more yeah. choreography. <laughs> and it's like, no, it's really about the passion that you are instilling in yourself from like the grit of the way that you hold your pen or mm. the pressure that you put on when you're typing these words out. Like those are the things that need to transcend in your voice. Like energy is real. That's mm. Newton's law. It cannot be deleted, mm. only restored or borrowed. And so when people are standing in front of you, they feel that. Like mm. they feel like when like, no, but it's frequencies. It's literally, I totally believe in that. It's literally in our physics. It's yeah. physics. It makes makes so much sense. But then, so you, when you're writing, you're not thinking about performance. Oh, I always do. Okay. Like, okay. literally. I just wanted to make sure. Because whenever yeah. I'm writing a poem, and this is just for me personally, when I write a poem, I hear it from the title. Okay. Because also how I was, like, raised in slam culture, I noticed that, like, also from like when I was like in fifth grade when we used to write like three body paragraph essays and they'd be like, oh, the first sentence is your hook. Yeah, so the lead. Get people's yeah. attention. And being in slam, you don't really have room to like warm the people up, to demand snaps from them, to demand that they not be dry. It's like, 
I only got three minutes to get your attention. And mm. that three minutes, I'm going to give you my title. And then the title might make you laugh, might make you smile, might make you think about something. And from there, you're going to hear the story, but you know where I'm going with. Yeah. And so that's just how I personally write my books. How poems. has it helped your relationships in life? I know that's a weird <laughs> question. That's a strange question, but it's actually not such a strange it's question. It's not. It's not. Because I'm, I think that like being able to be blunt and very forward with someone is very <laughs> difficult when you're younger. And then when you get aged out, you're oh, like, oh, no. Wow. You know, you, I, really you, like it. <laughs> I love it so much because I feel really old lately. So I'm feeling very aged out. It's like you can tap out. I'm just feeling like that. Like so I can You know what I mean? Yeah, like, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. I feel like... <laughs> Um, not unfortunately I am also like at this place in my life right now like I okay I really don't invite anybody that I have like any type of intimacy form with Mm -hmm. to my shows okay because it's like I don't know why I mean (laughs) it, it, it mainly stems from like a poem that I have um like about like window shoppers who I like don't agree with. <laughs> um, but like really okay. people like they they just, I feel like when they want to be in my world, they want that accessibility just like just to use it as like a placard. You know what I'm saying? It's like if you're gonna be like I'm not gonna invite you to my shows if like you're gonna be like not trying to respect the safe space. Right. I'm okay. not gonna invite you to my shows if like you're trying to like use like your interests for like a means of a DM slide. You know what right. I'm saying? Like yeah. it's like it's like mm, I have created this world for me. Like this is like my professionalism. It's like imagine if like the president walked up into like Olivia Pope's office and like she'd be like, "What are you doing here?" Like I come to you. You right. don't come to me. Right. Yeah. It's like I just like to keep it separate because this is my job. Like and that's really like just how I feel yeah. about it. Like that's my yeah. job. Mm. I know that was a weird question, but maybe it wasn't. I don't know. I was just interested because a lot of the things that we do in terms of work uh, really extends in terms of our personal lives. And it isn't about getting personal or intimate. It's really about like using the tools that we learn in everyday life in order to manage everything else, which I think is so interesting when it comes to performers because we were, t- this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with how the ba- there has to be boundaries. And this whole show that I've created is really a- making sure that people know there are boundaries, there are like, <laughs> there are nuances to performance. And you are kind of the first poet that I'm being able to solely focus in on, which I think is really important. So that's kind of why, I, I don't know why I'm explaining my question, but that's why I asked the question. Um, so on the show, we always ask, uh, it's called This Must Be The Gig. So we always ask what the first concert you ever went to is. And you, because you are special, you can talk about the first poetry. Oh, that you poetry. Saw. You can talk about any gig that really stood out in your mind. The very, or actually no, talk about the first one you ever saw and then the one that stood out. Okay. I can go. Yeah. I, okay. I have them. Okay. Yeah, you I have them? I have them. <laughs> You got him for I'm, I'm kind of always waiting for someone to ask me this question, so this really? is great. Oh, that's cool. Um, the first concert I ever went to, uh, I was five years old. Yes. Um, it was in the 80s. Okay. Um, it was at the... <laughs> Quit laughing, I'm on. I'm also aged out. Yeah. <laughs> you see, you're with literally yeah. senior citizens sitting yeah, over yeah. here. Uh, and so it was when, was when Michigan used to have a state fair. 
It was the Michigan State Fair. I don't think they yeah. do it anymore. It's, you know, Michigan, and, and it was near Detroit, right? There's a huge, you know, history and lineage with music. But, so anyway, first concert um, that my dad took me to and, and put me up on his, on his shoulders uh, was Gloria Estefan and the Miami Sound Machine, <laughs> which was amazing. Oh, my God. No one's mentioned Gloria Estefan um, yet. That's great. And then I, I think there's it. a lot of concerts that have stood out. The one. Yeah. Well, wait, you were talking also. Tell me what happened at the Pitchfork Festival with the National. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a good one that stood out. So um, I've been to Pitchfork many times. And uh, one of the times that I went was to see the National, um, who were the headliners. I want to say 2010. I could be wrong. It was around someone the time. Someone will correct you online. Someone, yeah, so someone worry. on the internet will come after me. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. I think it was around the. Um, I don't remember what album. Okay. Doesn't matter. I think the Boxer album. It was they were sort of like doing the victory lap on, yeah. on Boxer. And I really like that band a lot and have for a really long time. And um, so we got a little bit close and uh, they finished their set. It was a great set. And then all of a sudden I felt something hit me in the forehead <laughs> and I opened my hand and a drumstick <laughs> fell into it. So the drummer had thrown out a drumstick <laughs> like into the crowd <laughs> like you do. And it hit me in the head. And, you know, I had consumed, you know, maybe some various beverages throughout the course of the day, weekend, etc. Um, and I so, love that. You yeah. were literally, like, your head was the bearer of That's his right. gift. That's I right. love it. That, yeah. I love that it also ricocheted off your head. It ricocheted off yeah. my head, um, which, is, which is large. And, um, and, and I also remember I grabbed it and then I, I clasped my hands around it. And I think I yelled like, I got it, motherfuckers. I was like, no one cares. Actually. No, one cares. no one actually really Although, cares. Although like, I don't know, people really get into that shit. Like when people throw like guitar picks and drum sticks, people re- and yeah. set lists, like people will fight you yeah, and claw. Like sweat on yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I, I guess I do too. I still have the drumstick. Um, so that you know, is the that best was, story. That was cute. Thank you that for your fun. little anecdote. Yeah. Do you want to talk you about it? your first? Sure. Sure. I feel mine's is like less amazing. So like I was a theater kid when I was in high school. I was in musicality and like cheerleading. Like I was a full gleek. So I was more of like a musicals kid than like a concert kid. The first musical I ever went to was Wicked with my mom. Amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. I just went to Definitely. see Rent not too long ago. Cried my in ass In Chicago. Off. Yes. It for was, the 20th yeah, anniversary. I, know. The, like, I saw that too. It was on for like a week. It was really good. Yeah. But I guess like one of the actual first concerts I had ever seen was probably my first Pitchfork was maybe like three years ago when Jamila was performing. Mm-hmm. And like I got to see Solange and like, you know. That, that was, was the best year. That was yeah. like my first time like actually like being like at a concert or like a festival. And like yeah. Jamila, I was in like Jamila's VIP. I was like. Ooh, my first concert, I am doing it big. Yeah. Um, and then um in 2017 when I became Chicago's first Youth Poet Laureate, I had also seen Chuck D and DJ Laura yes, perform. I that read night. about that you were did did you open for I did. Com- <laughs> <laughs> you opened for Common I at did. some point. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I seen Common too. How did you open? You um, just a perfor- just a performance, performance set. So there was okay. um I believe there was a it was like not really a concert, there was just like a an event that was happening, I believe, like in front of Buckingham Fountain or around there. Okay. And it was like Common, Yo-Yo Ma. And they had asked for like a bunch of like, uh, well, not a bunch, but like three poets. Myself, I believe Jalen was also there. And we had just performed a poem and, you know, it was cool. 
So what is, is there a performance of your own that has stood out? A highlight from your career so far, it, up until your five-year plan? Because now would, we're going to be looking ahead, <laughs> so up until... Um, it would definitely have to be probably the Metro 2017 when I had performed a window shop in Asnagur. That was like probably one of the most notorious poems that like I'm known for. My mom shows that poem to everybody on the bus, like literally everybody. She calls me like every other day, like you had this amount of views now, you had this <laughs> amount of views now, and like yeah, it's, it, I don't know. It, and but honestly, you need that. You have to yeah. have that kind of support. And honestly, that poem, I wrote that poem in check the method. Like it was, I would never forget that day. It was very rainy. It was very gloomy. It was a workshop that was led by Kevin. It was just a really great, you know, workshop. I had mm. got it, and then. It became one of my favorite poems in my book. So Nick mentioned that you can do a poem for us. Oh yeah, I forgot. if that's okay, <laughs> that's I don't want to put you on the spot. If you're feeling tired or if you're feeling any sort of way, obviously it would be amazing for people who, because this this show is not only uh, Chicago centric. Of course, it's the world, and I have lots of listeners from all over. So if this would be something that you'd want to share, because they might not even be able to watch you live. Oh, yeah. You could do like a snippet. You don't have to do the entire poem. You could, you know what I mean? You could, if that's something you're interested in. I don't want to force you. I, I, I do not mind. I was trying to think of a poem to write. I guess one? I should have yeah. grabbed that book before. No, um, it's okay. Well, you can, if you want to think about it, we've got time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's also why I'm glad that we're chatting is because a lot of people associate performance with this like big entertaining, you know, spectacle. And the truth is that performance could be just us chatting right now. Like there's always a a portion of ourselves that we are where we're performing, you know? I love performing because I feel like often with me and performing, I love to make people laugh because, um, White people love being uncomfortable and they love to like pay for like being uncomfortable. Like they would literally pay so much money to like go to a comedy club to like have someone like roast them. And so like and like what I have learned about like going into like those spaces that aren't really POC spaces is right. that, you know, I have to I gotta finagle my way into this. Mm-hmm. Um, granted I know I'm being paid for this, but still like You have to find your purpose. Right. In it's that. like yeah. I mean, I'm not gonna flesh like it don't it don't it I really don't care, but it you understand the feeling. I as a as a black woman, I know the feeling of like saying nigga fifteen times in a room full of black like full of white white people. people you yeah. know what I'm saying? And it's yeah. like okay, hey, this poem might not be for you specifically, but yeah. you might get a laugh or two yeah. out of it. Just it's enjoy like the that boundary ride. between making art for your audience or making art for yourself, yeah. and knowing that they'll connect either way, and sometimes they don't even have to. Yes, yeah, because that's also the issue, right? With um, political art, sometimes everyone who's on the receiving end, you're like, oh, but now I have to be an activist, I have to be an ally, and the truth is, maybe you just need to shut up and listen. I love that. Ooh, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, yep. that's how I feel sometimes. So. That really resonates, and mm-hmm. thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Do you, want it, do you know which poem you want I to do? do? I got okay. it. Um, yeah, so the poem is from my book, Commando, which was published in 2017 by Haymarket. You can get one from me. Don't buy it from Amazon. And, um, <laughs> and it's called 79th B, The Catwalk, which is basically an homage to all the women who walk down the street and just go through catcalling or the male egos yeah. every day. Um, 79th be the catwalk Tyra Banks ain't got shit Taxes just hit Folks strut 
Here is the timber of our land. We give the breeze a new cover, girl. Some dude with a camera say he could buy my walk plus interest, my face. Ain't enough to want my body to move like I got somewhere to be. Cause round here, home ain't much of America's model. My landlords say I walk like money, a stain or finesse. Examination is now extermination. What was a shortcut is now a safe word kept for cutting. Or just in case some fool thinks a South Side stomp sweet. Commercial. Commissary is a black girl's stride to the bus. Be black boys who grab their dickies. Gucci belt gang expect me to hold their strap. Loose square sellers all off theirs, ready to hit a lick or get one. They think the bus will wait for me, but someone else ready to take my spot. Like the white man's hunt ain't my job too. Like they ain't got somewhere to be too. Like we ain't in a hurry to go someplace where we can just walk. Thank you. I was nice. You were nice. The whole thing. You got the whole thing. Oh my God. Sorry, I wasn't talking to Mike because I was overwhelmed and hugging. Um, so I think and I love you. your fit, by the way. I'm <laughs> a big fit person. Like, <laughs> it's nice. It's very a different world. You're giving me Maggie vibes. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, so people can find you how? Let's let like drop plug. Okay, so I am on Facebook at Iman Loren Black, Iman okay. spelled E-M-O-N. With um, an apostrophe between With an the apostrophe. E yeah. um, I have a, a Facebook page, Iman Loren. Um, and then my Instagram and my Twitter is Loren Like Polo, because people think it's Lauren, but <laughs> yeah. it's pronounced like... Loren. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's Loren Like Polo. Um, that's my Instagram, my Twitter, and you can also find my podcast, The Real Hillwise of Chicago. What is it about? It's basically, so uh, The Real Hillwise of Chicago is a platform for mainly POC um, people, folks, um, to just talk about love and sex and relationships without the aid of a whitewashing lens. Um, unfortunately, when we only get to hear about sexual experiences or romantic you know desires mm -hmm. or these stories they come very skewed of course. and they're very open well, and it's through media who, yeah who, like who when you like literally yeah. like you can watch sex in a city on like three <laughs> networks um but girlfriends oh God, that is the worst i know but yeah. like girlfriends is like directed by kelsey Grammer, a white man you know what i'm yeah. saying or like when you think about black people and relationships we only have like love and hip-hop or the real housewives of whoever uh, Atlanta, or you know Potomac, what i'm saying yeah. so it's like yeah. i really wanted to like take like I decided to like just make the role it's like hey we need to hear ourselves having these conversations you have to tell your own story absolutely yes I can't wait to listen please I'm so do. excited it's we'll also put the link yes. so I'll find it and put the link as well please do you can find it on anchor fm and it'll get you every place. okay amazing thank you thank you yeah can I do a young Chicago of authors course. yes social media plug, plug it all as well <laughs> Um, yeah, so Young Chicago Authors, uh, Young Chicago Authors, uh, at Young Chicago Authors on Facebook and Instagram, mm -hmm. at Young Shy Authors mm -hmm. on Twitter. Mm -hmm. uh, Instagram is the, be the, the best way to find out about what we're doing and where that's we're doing it. That's interesting. And how we're I doing it. I love Instagram. Out of all yeah. the portals, that's my favorite. It's because my brain works in pictures. Yeah, so we, it's like so much safer. 
I don't know why. Oh, great. Twitter is very scary. <laughs> yes. Maybe for you it's... Twitter is scary I, for me. Oh, really? Because as a poet, I can imagine Twitter could I be love, useful. I mean, I, uh, Twitter can be a great form of, like, when you're teaching the idea of, like, how, like, Lucille Clifton is very known for, like, mm. economizing her words and her poetry. I feel like Twitter has been a great form that a lot of people have took on as, like, a form of, like, minimalizing the words and putting mm. each weight in each word because you only have, like, what, 160 characters? Yeah, so. yeah. And I feel like it's also... I can't wait... I mean, I might do this. You heard it here first. I'm going to have some poems with some emojis in there because I feel like emojis, like, you could tell a whole story <laughs> with just emojis. Of course. Well, that's like, how we all talk now. Right. So, so a lot of emotion in emojis. Yeah. Literally, like, when you have people that have a thread. And Black Twitter is so inspirational. The way people give, like, you know, uh, quick dissertations on, like, uh, mm. black vernacular or, like, you know, sayings that, like, our parents used to tell us and, like, you know, Twitter is like a social it's a good place. For it's that. a therapist. Yeah. Like you got people holding our elders accountable. You got people mm. just holding everybody accountable. So I think Twitter is yeah. a great a great tool. I'll let my kids. I love it. it. That's so positive because I like hate Twitter. So that's really good. Yeah, I feel like Instagram is more. Yeah. yeah. Is more. <laughs> really. Instagram really? stuff. Yeah. 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 I know, Twitter. I feel like is like open. It's almost like open source acad- academia and activism yeah. in a particular way. So like definitely. People, but also like. Not a lot of people on Twitter. Don't have ever come for Beyonce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Instagram, to be honest. Or anywhere. Yeah, let's just, you know, let's just agree on that. This Must Be the Gig is produced by Adam Kibble, and we'd like to thank Billy Yost and the kickback for our theme song, Rube and buy their music at thekickbackband.com. Lexi Frame for the artwork, Daniel Brater and Dean Berger for the additional sound design, and the Consequence Podcast Network, where you'll find a bunch of other amazing shows. listened this far why not go the extra mile and leave us a review on apple podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts your comments provide valuable feedback for us and it helps other people find us too for information on new episodes be sure to follow us on facebook twitter or instagram at tmbtgpod and generally just irritate everyone you know about the show thanks again and i miss you already Consequence Podcast Network.